Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we're joined by Director of Quantitative Market Strategy, Denise Chisholm, to discuss the impending debt ceiling decision, the Treasury implications following a deal, and how it could affect the market environment. As pressure mounts on leaders to reach a deal, Denise explains to host Pamela Ritchie that investors are concerned about liquidity following a debt ceiling resolution. She describes how, over the last year, the general account of the Treasury has been using significant resources, which it will likely attempt to replenish by issuing Treasuries, in turn depleting the reserves of the banking system. The near-perfect correlation between those reserves at banks' balances and the S&P 500 over the last 21 months suggests that a liquidity withdrawal will negatively impact equity markets, even if a debt ceiling deal goes through. Turning to the developing inflation story, Denise explains that the Fed could keep hiking rates if the service side of the economy stays strong. She suggests that investors may not want to look to the Fed when it comes to predicting market trends, and instead suggests that overall inflation is a more effective driving metric. Denise also breaks down emerging trends in the technology sector, citing the 40% peak to trough contraction in the NASDAQ and the 60% decline of overall growth stocks as primary reasons for its recent defensiveness. This episode was recorded on May 23rd, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Got a few data points. We'll discuss those with you in a minute, but really curious to sort of what what happens after we get over this, these mountain talks, essentially. Yes, maybe we will get over them. And I think there is a new narrative around the liquidity after the debt ceiling. So many people think that investors might be concerned about the fact that we might default or the U.S. might default and a debt ceiling resolution might not get done. But there is a growing consensus, and I would say it's a fair consensus that I hear a lot uh, in the hallways where I walk, that it's going to be the liquidity issue after the debt ceiling. So if you think about what has happened to the general account of Treasury, they have run down and dwindled their account. After the debt ceiling, they'll need to replenish that account, presuming the debt ceiling gets done. They'll need to replenish that account, and they will do it by issuing Treasuries, which will deplete the reserves, the banking system. Now, if you graph this historically, and many of you may may have seen this graph, there is a near perfect correlation between those reserves at banks, balances, and the S&P 500 over the last 21 months. So you would say that this liquidity withdrawal and the potential drawdown in reserves is going to be the clear catalyst for a negative issue for the equity markets, despite the fact that the debt deal might get done. Now, the problem with that, I would call it a narrative because we don't really know. The way I look at data is, again, not to think what could happen, but let's assess what has happened. And that correlation, while it has been true over the last 21 months, is not a long-term correlation that I think investors should feel confident in terms of betting on. 
Because what we've had since the financial crisis is excess reserves in the system. That's sort of been the definition of the last 20 years. And it's not always clear that that drawdown in reserves, which by the way, have loosely been coming down for the, for the better part of the last year, I would say, is always an issue. So I think it's less of a smoking gun and more something we probably need to keep our eye on, but something that has not had a consistent correlation to equity market returns in the It's interesting because when you say last, did you say 21 months? Is that what you said? Last, last 21 months. 21 months. I mean, a lot's happened. I mean, that, that, that's going into the pandemic, but it is recent history, as you point out. And, and a very low interest rate environment is, is, is not, you know, what we had 35 years ago, but it's certainly been a, a pretty long period of time of low interest rates. And so, I mean, it's, there, there's a, it's hard to know what reality actually is. Like, what does reality look like in terms of looking at the reserves and where stocks go? And what's correlation and what's causation? I think that's the biggest tricky issue because could it be two things were causing both of those things, the S&P 500 to go down and reserves to decline and that potential corollary actually broke or changes? And I think that we're seeing, again, if you remember my thesis, I think that we saw a lot of headwinds over the course of the last 21 months, uh, namely real income and real wages in way contractionary territory relative to prior even non-recessionary periods and certainly in line with prior recessionary periods. But now we have what I'll call a positive catalyst with those headwinds turning to tailwinds. If that is the bigger driver for the market, meaning that real wages are actually accelerating because inflation is decelerating, then maybe the real underlying driver to the market might be positive. It just happened to be correlated with the reserve issues at banks. That's fascinating. Okay, so how do we stack up the probabilities on, on each of these scenarios? Yeah, the way I think about it is, you know, in some ways, I think the, the debt ceiling will first sort of talk about that a little. Is that sure? Okay, so where are? What do you see when you see some of these headlines coming out? We we've heard now back from sort of the Republican side of things saying, hold, you know, hold hold your line. What, what kind of lines do you think are being discussed at this point? Right, it does seem like they're coming together. And I think that that's what the market is potentially sniffing out. And look, they don't talk to me, but of the people that I talk to that are in the know, it seems that they're approaching much more of a consensus argument where two of the three core issues have loosely, and again, I don't know, they don't talk to me, been fairly decided in terms of spending caps and permitting reform being the two that I would say Biden has already gave on. And I think that there's one last factor that they're both trying to hold the line on, which is some sort of requirement, work requirement, as it relates to spending on, say, food stamps or potentially even Medicaid, that I think that there's some disagreement. But I think that there's more agreement than disagreement currently on these issues, and we'll see how it all plays out. And then, of course, there's the factor of when is the actual X date? We'll see. I mean, if you actually could make it to June 15th, which is not a 0% probability, uh, then you actually get taxes that hold you even longer, potentially kicking the can to, to late, uh, late, potentially even in the summer. So that's also not a 0% probability. So we're looking closer in terms of what deals might get done, but there's obviously no guarantee to the market. But what I would say is that the way I think about tail events, and people do ask me this all the time, 
you know, how do you position for something like what might be a default? And that's a, it's a risky thing because in some ways I don't want to bet for a default, nor do I want to bet against a default. So if you say I'm worried about a default, therefore I will invest in cash and wait to own equities or any other risky, um, even treasuries, whatever you, you define as risky, that is an implicit bet on a default. So the way I think about it is I don't want to do either of those. So I sort of back up and say, what is the market potentially discounting? How much fear is in the market? And assess a downside relative to an upside. And the way I look at, I mean, you know, in some ways, the most palpable indicator is always valuation spreads in small caps, which have really taken the brunt of the, of, um, in some ways, the banking crisis. Valuation spreads are now at recessionary wides. So when you've seen them at, you know, pandemic wise, and we're now well above the recession that we, we actually saw in the aughts, you get, interestingly enough, it only happens 5% of the time, but nominal returns in small caps of almost 50%. Right, so when I see data like that, it's a lot to play for. That's a lot of upside risk. So from an upside to downside perspective, I actually see more upside risk in the market, even relative to, you know, the, the scenarios that we're approaching. So we got a little bit of um, information today on the inflation side of things. This is the PM not PMI indicator. It's really it's a sort of a services story. So we saw services still on the rise. The manufacturing story has been doing what it's been doing for some time. But what do you see on that? How does it fit into the the real wages story that that goes into what you're discussing right now? Yeah, I will say that there's there's concern, and I get this you know here as well at Fidelity that there is concern if the service side of the economy stays strong, that will keep service inflation strong and will keep the Fed hiking. And I think that that is a possibility, certainly. But remember that as much as you know, Powell focuses on core services, that doesn't always relate to the PMI. So just in terms of the diffusion index strength, it's not always coordinated or correlated to an inflationary impulse. So that's number one in terms of data sets. Don't translate directly those PMI diffusion indices to sustained inflation. And the other thing is, even in core services, doesn't translate neatly at all to overall CPI. And if you think, well, you know, Powell is focusing on just core services, remember, it's just a portion. In fact, the portion of core services that's elevated is only 8 to 10 percent. X-shelter, X-shelter, and we can talk about shelter. But X-shelter, like, there's not a big component that's still staying sort of inflated. But what's been more important driver to the market, and I will get to income growth, is the overall CPI. Because it actually, you do spend money on food. You do spend money on energy. That does matter to real wages. Real wages are more likely to be the driver. And both of those things and all of those things matter much more to profit margins. So as it relates to the stock market, it is much more important to look at overall inflation and even goods inflation as it relates to being a critical driver. And it has even been less important to watch the Fed. So if you had to choose between, I wanna look at overall inflation or do I wanna look at what the Fed is telling me to look at inflation, historically not the case. And B, I'm not sure that the Fed is even what we wanna look at as investors. I think that that's a little bit in the rear view mirror. It doesn't mean that the Fed is never an impact on markets, but it also means that it's not often the main driver. Do we want to look at housing? I wanted to ask you about housing at some point. I mean, what what do we want to look at then? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, housing has actually, I think, peak to trough contraction in new home sales that actually just came out today is almost a 30% decline. 
who we've actually seen a rebound, which is interesting in the sense that you know mortgage rates are not that far off the highs. I think you know we experienced the shock of mortgage rates going from let's call it three to let's call it seven, and we've seen some give back. I don't actually know where we are today, but let's call it six and a half. So it's fairly steady, at least not going up anymore, and we've seen some intrinsic demand return, and I think that that's to me, that's a bullish scenario because housing is a bit like energy in the sense that these are big macro indicators that you don't want a collapse in or in some ways like for energy, a spike or housing, a collapse. Right. And we're starting to see that this is not a replay, at least in the housing market of the financial crisis, where yeah, despite the fact that affordability took a big hit from that three to seven, there is still some intrinsic demand for housing on the new home side. And there's not a lot of supply on the, the existing home side because not a lot of people are willing to give up those low rates in terms of mortgage. So you have a pretty decent balance that says it's probably, it's not a high probability right now that housing is going to be your problem like it was in 2009. Tell us a little bit about the discussion of, you know, how many, this is really the big tech story of this year so far. Um, so not a lot of stocks, driving disproportionately the stock market. Um, how should we be thinking about that? Have we, are you booking those? You, you certainly were talking about small caps a couple of minutes ago. I mean, how, what does that mean ultimately when you see such a small piece of the stock market going so high? Well, quantitatively it's a lot, but yeah, it's not a, it's not a lot of stocks. Yeah, maybe over what time frame? It's funny because I was just having a discussion with my colleague, Justice, who's a technician. And we were talking about breadth in the, in the stock market. And it's funny because you can have a chart of NASDAQ breadth, which is really interesting, that all it does is actually go down, but all the NASDAQ has done is risen. So there are a lot of ways that you can calculate you know, the percentage of stocks and all of this uh, information, but very few of those indicators are predictive or tell you something that is inherently either bad in the market or even good in the market. And most measures of breadth are actually coincident or potentially lagging. Breath was actually late to indicate the bear market in 2000, in fact, when it was very, very narrow market. And you didn't need a breath index to actually tell you that it was, in fact, a narrow market. So when people start to say, well, it's all the gains in X amount of time are driven by five stocks. Well, you know what? All the losses are also driven by five stocks most of the time. If you exclude some indicators, that's sort of the problem is when you get in a market environment that doesn't have outside returns, either down 20 or up 20, what you start to approximate is any return is driven by whatever is outperforming. That's not really the definition of a narrow, of a narrow market. And it's not, again, it's not this danger sign. So I call those things very informative. I told you something. I told you something that was a fact, but I didn't tell you anything that could actually help you in your portfolio because none of that data is actually predictive. Now, I do think that technology is potential leadership over the course of the next year. So I think it's durable leadership. And in part, I think earnings revisions have been very strong in cyclical sectors overall, and in particular technology. So not only are we in the throes of an earnings recession as we speak, meaning that now on a year-on-year basis, earnings for the overall market is actually contracted by, I think it's, it's about five to 7%, but has contracted in bottom quartile territory already for technology stocks. That's usually a good position to be in as a technology investor. And now you're starting to see revisions 
firm, meaning that we actually might be experiencing a return and or an improvement in those net revisions. And in fact, what's interesting is if you rank the 11 sectors and say which sectors have the best earnings revisions right now and which sectors which, uh, have the worst, number one and two are consumer discretionary and technology. And number 11 and or 10 and 11 is energy and financials. This was almost the exact opposite last year. So last year this time, the worst earnings revision momentum was technology and consumer discretionary. And the best was actually energy and materials, it wasn't financials, but was energy and materials. So we've seen a flip-flop. So while people are busy talking about, oh no, it's just a narrow market and there's really nothing to this, or this is already a bubble based on AI because it's just in these stocks, I'm looking at the data saying, I think that this might just be an earnings revision story. That if you're going to be that narrowly focused, you might very well miss it. In in the thematic story of how you look at things, there's, there's been much discussion about sort of is tech actually everything, and you know, therefore, in a tricky market, if that's what you think this is, is it in fact more of a, a protective area of the market to be in at this point? Now that now that we've had um, the relative story sort of play out. Is, is tech more defensive at this point? How are you looking at some of the themes and how they cross through some of the sectors? Yeah, in some ways, if you define defensive by anything that is already seen, a bottom quartile earnings contraction that tends to oscillate, most of technology and let's call it the disruptive funds end up in that vertical, that's almost, I don't want to say by definition defensive, but that's going to have some defensive qualities because it's already taken the brunt of whatever the earnings slowdown is. And I'll juxtapose that with something like energy. Why does it have such negative earnings revisions on a relative basis? Well, because it doesn't really have negative earnings revisions at all up until this point, because fundamentals have already been so strong, meaning that it has taken no earnings pain. So in some ways, you know, people have said, well, would you just boil it down to like buying last year's losers? Yeah. Somewhat. I mean, I think you can think of defensive qualities acting a little like that. I think you need to be a little bit more specific in terms of aligning probabilities, things that actually, um, you know, do oscillate through time that are in bottom quartile earnings revisions, things where valuation is at least on your side and not a severe headwind, and things where macro indicators like deflation and lower potential interest rates are also on your side. So I'd add those things, but I think in a glaring, sweeping way, technology by that peak to drop contraction in the NASDAQ of 40% and some individual very growthy stocks being down almost 60% is almost going to act defensive for that reason. Interesting. That's so fascinating. So the questions come in um, whether this, in fact, is closer to a stagflationary moment. You see that PMI number come in. It makes you wonder what what ultimately needs to be done without one way or the other, and also how you position if it is, in fact, closer to a stagflation scenario. Yeah, so I I struggle with the whole stagflation definition because theoretically, and I say theoretically because I should sort of ask the person who asked the question, like, how do you define it? It would have to be a contraction in GDP with top quartile inflation. That's how I would define it mathematically because I feel like you have to define it mathematically and then you have to look and see. And if you were going to say that is the definition of stagflation, Denise, I agree with that, then it would be when you look back in history, what do you want to own? You want to own energy and material. Those are your sort of stagflation plays to a lesser extent industrials, but really coordinated on energy. And what would be your biggest underweights? It would be things like technology and consumer discretionary. 
So if that's your bet and that's what you're playing and that's the way you look at it, that's the historical playbook. I don't see that right now for a bunch of reasons. I mean, one, even just the overall CPI has now, when you look at it on a six month basis, we've rolled out of the top quartile. So in some ways we're like out of what I would mathematically define as stagflationary territory. And when you look historically, when you have that big offset, you know, from top quartile position to a deceleration in inflation and overall CPI, that's actually quite a bullish scenario for the market. And what works, technology and consumer discretionary, things that are a little bit more rate sensitive. So I don't think we are positioned for that right now. I don't think that that's the most likely scenario. I wouldn't say it's a 0% shot either. If we have another, some, some sort of shock as well, you could certainly see that come to fruition. But I don't think that we're, you know, the data that I'm looking at says that we're in or approaching stagflation. And right now I'm sort of positioned in the opposite way. So if in fact, what comes out of the debt ceiling negotiations is in fact, there's less government spending, which is I think at least likely. What we don't know is how much and, and where exactly. Um, what should that do to the inflation story? I mean, that should make it drop if there's less government spending, no? I'm not sure it does anything. And I am an old minority here. And there is definitely, there's somebody, um, I forget what professor just wrote a book on sort of the fiscal theory of price, which is all inflation is a result of spending. And maybe, I mean, we've run deficits for years and years and years. And I could never really correlate it to inflation. And I think partly when I look at the government multiplier, it gets less and less effective at producing inflation over time. Mathematically, you can actually chart that. So there are at least four reasons we could list in terms of why we had the inflation shock we had. Energy would be one in terms of a supply shock. Supply chains would be another. Government spending would be another. And then you would say monetary policy. Neither broad-based government spending nor monetary policy have been consistent predictors of inflation. The only government spending that has been a consistent predictor of inflation is when they write checks to consumers who then either save it or spend it. And not sort of the, right, not sort of the shovel-ready projects or green energy reform or that kind of government spending hasn't always been traditionally related to inflation, at least on a consistent basis. So I wouldn't say that that's a positive. I think that there were other drivers of inflation that are deeper positives, but I also certainly wouldn't say that reined in government spending would be negative either. I think that that's probably the right strategy up from a future perspective. I think ultimately that will have to get solved. The unfortunate part is it doesn't get solved until it absolutely has to get solved. So do you think CPI is it's still above five, sorry, CPI is still above 5% and GDP is negative in the US. Does this combination indicate anything of note? Oh, that's a stagflation. Um, so it's above five, yes, on a trailing 12 month basis, it's below five on a last six month basis. So I think that, you know, the market, when I think about the market and what's likely to happen is that that 12 month obviously mathematically trues up to that six month. Um, perspective. So I think that inflation is decelerating and in my math is decelerating somewhat rapidly outside shelter. So if you look at everything X shelter and even X energy shelter and food, so let's talk about core X shelter, what you've actually seen is the quickest deceleration we've ever seen since 1975 and the quickest deceleration we've ever seen without any. 
So if we, if by that definition, and I think shelter is lagged relative to home prices, so shelter is likely to decelerate on a continual basis, and you can fairly show that statistically. So if we don't have on a run rate basis over the last six months an inflation problem and we don't have a recession, it's very unlikely that we do have an inflation problem if we approach a recession. Again, we might have a recession problem, might have a Federal Reserve problem, but the way I look at the data, it doesn't suggest to me that we have a durable inflation problem. Now, as it relates to, I think you said negative GDP growth, and I think that the last quarter before this quarter on a real GDP perspective um, was 0.88%, uh, which is in the bottom quartile of all historic instances, but yet not a contraction. And we actually saw a little bit of an uptick to like, I think it was 1.5. So we have yet to see a contraction in real GDP states on a sort of year-on-year -year basis, not sequential basis. So, um, okay, thank you for, for answering that. When we see the story of the consumer waving, sort of winding its way through and you're taking all these different pieces and showing them to us, it, it does sort of look like it's been a little bit of a soft landing so far, no? I mean, what, what do you think this is? I, I, we go back to these terminologies, but it doesn't look like a crash or anything. Spending is still yeah. happening. Manufacturing is its own story, services is its own story, but it's not, a, it's not falling off into a void. Yeah, it's funny. It sort of it depends on the way you define it. So that's that was a great way to sort of contextualize it. It's not falling off cliff. Absolutely not, right? In some ways, when you think about what we've been conditioned to think about as it relates to recessions, what were our last two? The pandemic fell off a cliff. 2009 fell off a cliff, right? So those were the two fall off a cliff. And those are what we were conditioned to, to know about recessions or slowdowns or what happens. That's definitely not been the case so far. And in the, in, the, in the sense that that's not the case, then you could certainly say that this is so far a soft landing. Um, I would still say it doesn't really appear soft to me when real GDP growth on a trailing basis is in the bottom quartile of all historic instances and earnings growth now on a yearly basis is now negative. That's not really that soft. Um, it's not hard like it was in the pandemic, the evaporation of growth or the financial crisis when literally everything fell off a cliff. So it depends on the way you define soft and hard. But either way you define it, what I see mathematically is an opportunity. So from those levels of either earnings contraction or bottom quartile real GDP growth, 90% of the time you actually have an acceleration over the next year, right? So even obviously during the pandemic, we saw this, the only exception was the financial crisis. Do you and want to say that again, 98% of the time? 90, 90, did I muddle it? Yeah, I might've mumbled 90% of the time. So the only time it didn't actually reaccelerate was the financial crisis. So that's sort of, and we've had a lot of recessions in the US, right? So, you know, 10, right? So I'm, I'm going back in history, that's why I get nine out of 10. So what you see is that that's actually the, the rarity, right? The exception, not potentially the, the rule. So once your starting point is at what I would call like a maybe not so hard, but not so soft landing either, there's usually opportunity to stop. This is fantastic. It's such amazing context to help us steer through all the various headlines. Denise Chisholm, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here, Pamela. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts 
and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.